New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Is there a benevolent source in the universe that guides us with synchronicity? Is there an infinite intelligence that pervades everything? Is consciousness the primary source out of which all arises? Our guest today has experienced the one common flow of what he calls infinite mind that unites all individual minds. This conclusion is backed up by many philosophers and scientists in both the far and the near past who would agree, such as Plato, Hippocrates, Pico della Mirandola, Schrodinger, Walt Whitman, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Carl Jung, astrophysicist Sir James Jean, and quantum physicist David Bohm. And today we'll be exploring infinite intelligence that is available to all with our guest, Dr. Stephen G. Post. Dr. Post is among a handful of individuals awarded the Distinguished Service Award by the National Alzheimer's Association. In 2001, he founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which researches and distributes knowledge on kindness, giving, and spirituality. Post served as a co-chair of the United Nations Population Fund Conference on Spirituality and Global Transformation. He's a professor in the Department of Preventative Medicine at Stony Brook University and the founder and director of the Stony Brook Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics. He's a leader in medicine research and religion and the author of several books, including Why Good Things Happen to Good People, and God in Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Join us for the next hour as we explore a spiritual adventure story and paying close attention to synchronicities with our guest, Dr. Stephen G. Post. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's a delight to be here with you. It's so great to have you. I've just been just immersed in all the stories and all of your philosophy and what you've learned through the years, and I, I hope that we can convey a little bit of that to our listeners. And I'd love to start with a, a little bit of the beginning of your search 
And the beginning, when you were very, very young, you had a recurring dream. And maybe you can talk about this dream. I'd be happy to because that's the dream that set me on my life course. I was a 15-year-old kid. There's nothing particularly special about me. I was from Long Island. I'd gone up to a boarding school in Concord, New Hampshire. It was an Episcopal boarding school called St. Paul's. And I loved reading spiritual classics up there in the fall. I loved the leaves. I loved the beauty of the place. Uh, and uh, there was a, a period of about a year when I had a recurring dream. It recurred six times. I had, was not a big dreamer. And I think the fact that it recurred you know, gave it a little more power for me. Maybe there's some message here trying to break through into my mundane consciousness. So uh, it was be early in the morning, and, and, and uh, um, I wasn't quite sure if I was fully asleep or awake, kind of betwixt and between, as they say. And I would see uh, this uh, vision in my dream. And it was of a, a thick, gray, silvery mist uh, without much visibility. And it was on a road to the west. I had no idea where that was going, but it was definitely toward the west. And then... Um, I would look to my left and I saw a youth uh, with stringy blonde hair who was on a ledge and was leaning out as if to jump. And then all of the, the mist and, and, and the fog dissipated and the face of a blue angel appeared. And I was not a believer in angels at the time. Uh, and in a very empathic and feminine voice, the angel said, if you save him, you too shall live. And then the dream was over. And we had eight o'clock required chapel every morning at St. Paul's. And I would go early and I would reflect on this when it occurred. Uh, and, 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 and I wondered, you know, because I, I thought maybe some dreams we just make up out of anxiety. And maybe some dreams we come up with to solve problems. But this was a dream it just seemed so real and so vivid and so palpable, and it kept recurring. So maybe it wasn't just me making it up. Maybe there was something deeper and more mysterious about it. Yes, it, it sounded like it. And you had a wonderful mentor that actually listened to you, and, and Dr. Wells, I think, and he actually you seriously and took you down to Yale University where you got to tell this dream to um, the divinity uh, group of uh, graduate students, I think. Yeah, Rod Wells was a Yale Div School grad. He was an Episcopal priest. He was a good friend of Alan Watts, by the way. Uh, and he was interested in adolescent spirituality. He, he was concerned that sometimes we just blow off adolescent spiritual experiences, like they're not really powerful or relevant or meaningful. But he took me seriously, and so did his wife, you know, who, who Julie, who was wonderful. And so um, uh, Rod Wells and I um, drove from Concord, New Hampshire, to New Haven. I'd never been to New Haven before. Uh, and uh, he had a friend there, James Diddies, who was a famous Jungian psychologist of religion who had a class on adolescent spirituality. So I was the guest of honor and I got to tell my blue angel dream. And here, what are you, 15 years old? I was old? Uh, 16 at the 16, time. 16, okay. Yeah. 
And, and, and they were asked, they were about 15 divinity school students, all people training for ministry. And they were asking me interesting questions. Like, so what did this all mean to you? And I said, well, you know, we all read Emerson up in St. Paul's for literary value, but I think I'm the only person who actually believes in the oversoul, who actually believes in this idea of a single mind. And that was what Emerson wrote about. Yes, absolutely. The, the oversoul in Emerson is very, very much akin to Larry Dossie's One Mind. Uh, and Deepak's idea of what of the, of the non-local mind, and so uh, we had a great conversation. And they said, "So, you know, have you been influenced by it in any specific way?" And I said, "Well, I guess so, because I did something that no St. Paul's kid had ever done before. I applied to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, because it's supposed to be an unusual place, and it's out west, and maybe that's where a blue a blue angel dreamer has to end oh, up." Oh my goodness! So, so they were kind of shocked by that. Um, uh, but it was a great afternoon, um, and uh, you know we retired to the Yale Chapel. I played uh, "Jesus Joy of, of Love's Desiring" on my classical guitar, mm. and Rod and I drove back to to Concord, and it was great. And I could talk about this experience with my peers. And now they weren't just laughing this off; they were actually saying, "Holy smokes!" You know, he got to Yale Divinity School. That's great. That was so dream. validation. Yes. Now, there are lots of stories between this and the, the, another incident that I'd love for you to share because it was so significant. Mm. And this really started you on Route 80, why the kind of the title of the book, God and Love on Route 80. So here we go. Uh, now you've, uh, you're graduated from this St. Paul's Prep School. And your father insisted that you work at that summer job at a factory of, of what was it, a, 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 a lamp shape. So tell us what happened there. Well, so Rod Wells uh, had got me a job tutoring in the Bronx for the summer. And I liked tutoring because when I was in New Hampshire, I used to tutor the French-Canadian kids who were from the countryside and they, they needed work. And so I, it was very gratifying for me. It's good to be good and all that. So now I'm home, I'm 17, just 17. And uh, my parents say, you know, we don't want you to work in the Bronx. Well, why? It's too dangerous. And we had an argument, kind of a running argument for about two or three days. And I was headed for Swarthmore. Eventually, uh, you know, my mom just fed up. She said, well, I'm not even sure we're going to cover Swarthmore if you don't give up this crazy idea. So um, I said, well, look, what else am I going to do? And my dad was the president of W&J Sloan's, which was a famous old furniture store on Fifth Avenue. Um, and he knew all the factories around greater New York, lamp factories, furniture factories, chair factories. And he said, you can work in Bill De Bono's lampshade factory in Patchogue. So believe it or not, for two weeks, I drove his secondhand gray Mercedes 190, which had seen better days, uh, and which I think he only bought so we'd look kind of up, up, to, up, to, up to par when we went to St. Paul's, right? So I'm driving that to the Patchogue lampshade factory, and I'm working between these two, you know, very large, wonderful Italian women. It's, there's no air conditioning. It's hotter than could be. Bill DeBono was supervising me with his big stogie uh, cigar. And after two weeks, I'd had enough. So Friday night comes along, and I drive to West Hampton Beach, where some of my friends live. That's a town on eastern Long Island, and it's kind of a hangout for young folks. So um, Libby Sutro, uh, a number of my friends were there. 
about 11 at night. I said, you know, they all knew about the dream. I said, I'm going to go west. <laughs> they were shocked. So with my classical guitar, my copy of Siddhartha, and 50 bucks in my wallet, I drove that Mercedes 190 on the Sunrise Highway, went through the Midtown Tunnel, up the FDR, over the George Washington Bridge. I'd never been west of the bridge. I didn't know where I was going, but I thought west. And there were two signs right next to each other. One was 95 south. That wasn't in the dream, but 80 west, Route 80 west. And so I followed that. And I followed it uh, through the night about five in the morning. I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania. I'm at the Lewisburg exit. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to do a U-turn and go home and my reputation will be intact. And I'll go to Swarthmore. But then cars in those days had a generator, right? They don't now, but when the generator broke, everything died. The lights died, the engine died. It was like complete zero power. And just at that point, this happened, and I was able to get the car over on the right shoulder. Okay, now we're going to pause for a second in this really exciting story. You're on your way, you're thinking about turning around, and you're thinking, having second thoughts. And the car dies, and you have to pull off the road right there. So we'll talk. We'll finish this story in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Stephen G. Post, and he's the author of God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. And if you want to know more about his work, uh, and he's, he has a wonderful website, I, I highly endorse it, stephengpost.com, and he spells his name S-T-E-P-H-E-N, stephengpost.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Stephen G. Post, and he's the author of God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. And we're talking about this pivotal moment in this when Stephen was a young man, he's not yet in college, and he he's taken his father's car and he's going west. And you you the car stops you in your tracks when you think about turning around it it dies and what followed that well you know i could have thought about that as a sign that i should go home but i thought of it as a sign that i should go forward so what i did 
as I pulled over on the shoulder. I had no telephones around. There was nothing I could do. All you could see were wheat fields for 20 miles in the, in the early dawn. And this is before the age of cell phones. Before cell phones. Oh, yes, absolutely. So I did what any young guy would do. I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I wrote a note. And it said to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane, East West, Islip, New York, 516-669-5655, from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> and I picked up my classical guitar. I had my Sid Arthur book, my wallet with 50 bucks, a couple pairs of underwear. I stuck my thumb out, and immediately a huge white truck stopped by. A guy flung the door open, and he said, where are you going? I'm Gary. I said, West. He said, I can get you to Chicago. Well, Gary was deeply spiritual and he prayed with this kind of love and emotion and improvisation that I'd never heard before. You know, I had just heard formulaic stuff, but this guy was really deep. And uh, so he prayed for me. He prayed that I would have a good trip west. And he suggested that maybe I should call my mom, but I said, no, Gary, I'm going to hold off on that. Uh, the car itself, when it broke down, you know, a uh, uh, fast forward seven months or so, and I was actually at Reed, and I took a course on um, uh, Alchemy 101, which was a combination of quantum physics and the history of medieval science. And the idea that somehow in the great power of this infinite mind, a generator could break down at just the right moment, just perfectly the right moment, so that I could <laughs> write that note. And just as I finished the note and I, and I stepped just in front of the car... Immediately, this big truck comes by. You know, you can say, well, that's too perfect not to be kind of set up by the universe, orchestrated in some way. And, and I began to think, you know, somehow this journey I'm on is, is, is blessed. When you finally get on the road and you're, uh, I'm going to skip forward because it's so, it, we could talk about every little detail in between, but you're in a hippie van and you're heading west, and you finally, in Nebraska, decide to call your mother. What was her response? There was a hippie gal, and she said, you know, you really should call your mom. And it's like <laughs> now five or six days into this journey. And I said, okay, I'll call her. So we pulled over in Lincoln, Nebraska, to a phone booth on 80, because 80 goes through uh, Omaha, and it goes through Lincoln. And, of course, I called Collect. And my mom said, oh, my God, Stevie, you're alive. We can call off the Pinkertons. And I said, Mom, you called the Pinkertons? Didn't you get my note? <laughs> Which was a bad thing to say. Yeah. This is a little confessional. And she said, you know, we should have let you work in the Bronx. I said, yeah, it's better than the lampshade factory. And she said, so where are you going? I said, I want to go out to San Francisco. And can I have Cousin George's address? So my cousin George Lamont uh, lived on 4 Chenery Street in the Mission District, and I would go out and spend the summer with George. So that's that incredible call that I made to my mom. Yeah. Now tell me, Stephen, when you're in San Francisco, there was a man that you met named Gus, and, it and he turned you on to Nichiren uh, Zen Buddhism. Yeah, Gus had been interned in Hawaii during World War II, like a lot of Japanese. He was Japanese-American. Um, 
And uh, he was a member of the Nichiren Shoshu uh, Buddhist community, which was located on the corner of Chenry and Market. And I, I gravitated toward that. So I was chanting with these big beats, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. And when everybody's doing that together, it gets really loud and powerful. And you lose all sense of time and place. And you just are transposed in lots of different ways. So I loved that. And I would uh, go with Gus to Hispanic restaurants in the Mission District and play Villalobos and Granados and Ponce. So you and, were playing your guitar while you were there. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's how I made uh -huh. my livelihood. Right. I didn't want to go to college. Right. I thought, I'm just going to be a good guitarist in the Mission that. District. But something happened. You did, because I think this is key in the story, you did get some sort of scroll oh, yeah. uh, from, from <clears throat> Gus. So what happened was uh, I drew a really bad draft number in a bin where they had your birth dates, and, and I was in trouble. So I called the people at Reed. I said, and this is in the time of drafting for Vietnam. Right. Right. I said, can you let me in? And they said, we'll let you in, which was nice of them because they didn't yeah. have to. Yeah. So about 7 in the morning on Market and Chenery, um, Gus, Cousin George, uh, and a bunch of people from the temple got together. I just, I just have to remind our listeners, if, if you were uh, going to college, that knocked your draft number down. So it, it kind of protected you oh, at pro that totally point. totally protected me. At that point. Absolutely. Later, it, it, was, it didn't protect anybody, but at that point, it did. At that point, if you were in college, you were right. free. Okay. They give me a Gahon zone, and a Gahon zone is a scroll. It was this, they have Chinese and they have Japanese scrolls, but this was a Japanese uh, scroll because that's what Nichiren Shosho is about. And... Um, you know, if you, if you take this scroll, it will give you luck. Gus explained some of the symbols to me, and I put it in my backpack. And I took the Market Street bus up to go uh, up to Golden Gate Park. And you what? You have your guitar, probably. I have my guitar, my Siddhartha book, a few other things. Um, and the scroll. Yeah, and I was reading. I, well, yeah, I had the scroll in my backpack. Uh, you know, uh, a few hundred dollars. And I walked across the park, and I start up the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was pretty early in the morning, so it was very, very foggy. And I remember it so vividly because I literally couldn't see more than about three feet in front of me. And I walk to the middle of that big, huge span. It's a long walk. And I'm on the left. Uh, there's a pedestrian area. And then there's a little railing. And on the other side of the railing is a ledge, right? It's probably different now because they wanted to protect people. Yeah. But I got to the middle. And uh, I heard a ruffling and a shuffling to my left. And I looked and, and I, I made out, you know, in the fog, this face of a youth with stringy blonde hair. And it looked very much like the youth I'd seen in my dream. But the dream was, okay, it was two years earlier and it was 3,000 miles away. So I couldn't gather it in at, at first. And, and, and I looked at him and I said, I truly hope that you're not planning to jump. He got angry and defiant because I'd interrupted him. And he, and he started quoting Shakespeare from Macbeth, life is empty nothingness. And I told him, I said, you know, it's that way for a lot of us and maybe I should be out there on the ledge, maybe you should be here. And I said, when you quote that stuff, it sounds a lot more realistic when you're on a ledge about to jump than it did at Memorial Hall at St. Paul's. So we struck up a rapport. His name was Harry, he said. And I said, look, Harry, I think, I, I know this is crazy to think, but I actually believe maybe 
I came all the way out here just to have this encounter with you right now on this bridge. And this was meant to happen. And he said, what? And he was so, he thought I was crazy. And I explained to him in, in depth, I mean, for like 20 minutes. Well, look, I had this dream when I was at St. Paul's and I was 15. I went to Yale. I talked about it in class. I uh, had this argument with my parents. I left the car on Route 80 near Lewisburg. I came all the way across the country. And for some reason or another, everything worked out perfectly because it couldn't have been any other way. And here I am with you in this moment. And I said, it's kind of a sacred moment. And I said, I've got an idea for you. I want to give you something that's going to turn your life around. He said, what's that? And I pulled this cajon zone out of my backpack. And I said, this will give you good luck and synchronicity the rest of your days. And he just didn't believe it. And I said, look, come over here. I'll unscroll it. I'll explain it to you. I'll give it to you, but you have to make me one promise. The promise is you have to walk north on the bridge, walk across the park, get the Marcus Street bus, go to Chenery. Wait, south on the bridge. Yeah, south, yeah, south on the bridge, because I was going north. Yeah, right. South on the bridge. And you have to um, take this note, which is in the book. I wrote a note to Cousin George. This is Harry. He needs a shower. Let him sleep on the same spot on your floor where I slept. Let him meet Gus. Let him get involved in some Buddhist activities and hopefully help him get his life together. Uh, and let him stay off drugs. Because I thought he might have been a little bit drugged up. I wasn't sure. And so um, uh, that was it. And we, 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 we shook hands. It was very warm. Uh, and I headed north, he headed south, and um, I got to the north side of the bridge. I put my thumb out, and this this tr this farmer's truck came by, and a guy opened the door again. The trucks come into this, and 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 he said, "Where are you going, boy?" And I said, "I'm going to Oregon," and he said, "Well, we can get you most of the way. My name's Dwayne Dill, D-I-L-L, -L, just like in Dill Pickle." And this here is my wife, Dorothy, who was this red-haired lady in the passenger seat. And they got me most of the way up. But as I was going through that experience all that day, you know, heading up north on, on the Pacific Coast Highway, I was thinking, you know, the mind of, of the divine mind is a very mysterious thing and very powerful. And it's totally beyond time and place. I it was an awakening for me that I could have this encounter based on a dream. That, that, you know, had, had nothing to do with San Francisco. Now, by this time, you really connected it to the dream. It was so such a vivid experience, and the dream was still vivid to you. And you could just see that there was a connection, that it was without a doubt. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Because I thought, and I had second thoughts about the dream. I mean, for, I mean, the, I mean, some dreams are just because of anxiety. You know, maybe I ate a hot dog that gave me dyspepsia or something like that, but it was a recurring dream. Um, you know, maybe it was just something my mind conjured up and young people are always taking desperate detours, trying to seek for meaning and so forth. So I wasn't sure if there was validity to it or not, but it was when I encountered Harry on the bridge and I had everything I needed. I had my gajones on. And, and, and I even spoke softly because the, in, the, in the dream, the angel had been very empathic in its statement, if you save him, you too shall live. And so, yeah, I felt at that time that something unbelievably uncanny had occurred and that this amazing synchronicity was real and that my life 
was never going to be the same. I was never going to question following my Blue Angel dream, and I never have. Beautiful. I want to remind our listeners, thank you so much, uh, to, with our, to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Stephen G. Post, and he's the author of God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, stephengpost.com. And he spells Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Stephen gpost.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Stephen G. Post, and he's the author of God and Love on Route 80. And we're talking about that trip out west, and we're going to skip skip ahead. There's a lot more in the story and a lot, lot that happened to you. But, Stephen, I'm wondering, with all of these experiences and these synchronicities and these people that are—we'll call them everyday mystics— you know, I know that you had a limousine driver that was a grand philosopher, and he drove this limousine. I'm wondering, how do you connect this? What What is your vision of God and spirituality and what it's all about? What do you feel about that in these times? Well, I'm definitely a mind-before-matter person. In the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was mind beyond time and space, infinite, totally loving, and comes the Big Bang. So all these things come into existence. The thermodynamic constants of the universe are set up in a way that can give rise to spiritual life forms. Um, God is the underlying ultimate reality of everything that exists, both seen and unseen. Um, and also, though, exists in a very special way in each human being. Hence, namaste. I honor the divine in you as you honor the divine in me. And, you know, over the course of my lifetime, I've taught ethics in medical schools, Chicago, Ann Arbor, Case Western, 20 years, Stony Brook. I don't say this to too many people, but the whole basis of my ethics is that we have to honor the divine in those around us, even if they're deeply forgetful and have dementia and so forth. So this is really important to me. And if we don't have that kind of enchanted image of the gift of human consciousness, then it's so easily uh, the case that we'll reduce people to life unworthy of life or useless eaters and we'll maltreat them in some way or another. So absolutely. Um, uh, you know, this has shaped my my life, and that's my concept of God. So it, we're all connected to this grand mind mm -hmm. we have in within us, and but it's also greater than us. It's and and there is a connection, and it is 
primary in the universe is what you're saying. You're saying there's materialistic or materialism science, which believes that, hey, it's all matter, and that's what's important, and the brain is is where consciousness is. But you're saying it's something else. It's beyond the brain, beyond right. the this gray matter. Yeah. So when I was at the University of Chicago years ago, I got my doctorate there. I knew Sir John Eccles, who was a very prominent Nobel Prize laureate neuroscientist who actually developed the idea of synapses. He did not think that mind was derivative from brain tissue, from cells, from synapses. He thought mind was its own category, that mind utilized the brain structures to manifest itself in our lives, but that mind was not derivative or epiphenomenal vis-a-vis matter. And many great philosophers of mind today argue that, and they argue it, I think, very convincingly. Uh, so it's not an unusual um, perspective. And whether it's you know Plotinus or Emerson or Hegel or Henri Bergson, many people have argued that. And many physicists today, even the majority of physicists, don't think that uh, the mind is reducible to matter. So one of my, my good friends, uh, Paul Davies, who wrote The Mind of God, was a Templeton Prize laureate. We were together about a year ago in Nassau. I asked him, um, uh, do you still believe all these ideas that somehow God's mind is eternal, beyond time, beyond space? And he said, absolutely. And he said, I'm not unlike many people um, who are also, uh, you know, well-recognized physicists. So what does that mean for us individually in our lives if God is eternal and omnipresent? And we're we're calling it God. I hope that people don't get get yeah. get hung up on the word God because it's used in such pejorative ways. But if what does that mean for us in our everyday life? Well, this this infinite mind is also pure, unlimited love, and we can feel that. But we have to slow down. We have to maybe go to a silence retreat. <laughs> <laughs> I was at one up in up in the Catskills not too long ago. We have to meditate. We have to get away from our external form and focus in on the inner light. Uh, and that's really powerful. So we need to take the time to cultivate it, to notice it, to feel it actively. And um, we also, though, can follow our journeys. So one of the things about Route 80 is that I think it's totally arrogant to think I made my life. I, that's not true. I had a dream. <laughs> I followed a dream. And there was a push from the lampshade factory, by the way. So it was a push and a pull, you know. And it probably wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been the push. But, um, you know, you're on a journey and you don't know who you're going to encounter. You have no idea. But you have to encounter them with, um, with openness, uh, with love, with discernment, of course. But that's your journey is the, the people that you encounter or brought into your pathway by this loving, cherishing deity. So I, I, I quit a career in immunology at UPenn, and I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School. And I went there because I wanted to study with Mersha Eliade, who had written his book on shamanism, and Joseph Campbell was visiting at the time. So I was in the Swift Kick coffee shop with Campbell and Eliade, these mythic figures. <laughs> And I told him my story, the Blue Angel dream. I told him about the car. I told him about Harry on the bridge. And 
Campbell said, synchronicity, not luck. And Eliade said to me, is it all synchronicity? Well, you know, it, he. I remember what you wrote in the book. You, you asked him, is it all Spir- is all spirituality synchronicity? And what he said to you right. is not all. This is fr- a right, quote right, from your right, book. Right, not right. all, but you have to notice it and be open to surprises. You right. need spiritual observational skills. When something is too good to be true, look carefully at the trace lines. That really popped, as you can hear. That popped for me that you just mentioned you have to be quiet enough to notice. And Larry Dossi uses an interesting word I think is unique. He says, you have to be a noticer. You have to pick up the winks. I use the word God whispers. You have to notice these things. And if you're just so busy in chronological time, running from point A to point B to point C, you, 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 don't, you don't get into what the Greeks called kairos. There's chronos and kairos. Kairos is divine time. It's mystical time. And it's in mystical time that you can notice these things. So what I, what, how I maybe think of it is there's ordinary mind, that place where we have habits, we have triggers that trigger us and, and things like that. And maybe meditation will, will help us understand that part of our mind where, where it's just on automatic and it's just doing all of its stuff and thinking all of its thoughts and, and every day. And then there's extraordinary mind, which is that place where you're in a, a field of, I'm going to use the word grace. Mm-hmm. Would it, does that sound like it's something that you resonate with? Oh, very much so. So I get up every morning. I'm a huge early riser. I've been getting up at five in the morning, even four. It drives my wife crazy over these 37 years. In those very wee hours of the morning, uh, I meditate and pray. And the, the, the Kabbalistic philosophers all said that's the time to get started because when you wake up immediately after sleep, you don't really have too much of a sense of precisely where you are. I could be in Cleveland. I could be in New York. And also you're kind of beyond time because you're not locked into the chronological pressure that just takes you into busyness. So that's when you can get closest to God because God is beyond time and beyond place. I'm thinking too, Stephen, that you are joining a field of people all around the world. I think of all the monks and nuns, especially, and maybe there are other, maybe there are Hindu practitioners that do it too, that are sitting and meditating at the same time. I think that's true. And you create uh, what some people would call a morphic field of love, you know. Uh, so I have a little meditation that I I say, um, uh, all people are one with your infinite mind of pure, unlimited love, fully healed and fully healing, secure, peaceful, kind, creative, prosperous, and guided. And to me, uh, as I begin the day, you know, I then visualize. I know all of, most of the people I'm going to encounter over the course of the day because I live in a busy medical school. And I know some people who are really sad because they lost a loved one. I know other people who uh, are struggling uh, with patients because of an addicted son, for example. Or I know other people who need to be forgiven because they're killing themselves over having make a, made a medical error. 
So I kind of dress rehearse all my encounters over the course of the day. And I ask, what expression of love makes the most sense for this person? And then when I actually encounter them over the course of the day, I'm ready, I'm there spiritually, and I know what to say and how to say it. So for this particular person who had just made a serious clinical error in diagnosis, which resulted actually in a, in a, in a, in a death, um, and he was devastated, I, I said, you know, we talked deeply, compassionately, and I said, you know, those who make no mistakes make nothing. He'd never heard that before. It's not original to me, actually. Martin Luther King said that. Those who make no mistakes make nothing. And we just talked about that for two hours, and it was beautiful. And he overcame his self-doubt, and he went on, and he's doing great. And there was another case, it's really amazing, of a medical student who was really struggling. She wanted to leave medical school because she was from Queens and came from a really poor family. It was Korean-American and just couldn't get into the culture. And so he had a lot of self-doubt. She was brilliant. And she came into my office, just showed up in my office. And I spoke with her for a while. But I had all these meetings to go to, chronological time gripping me, right? And I was going to just say, look, I can't talk to you now. Email me. Would have been a bad thing. And then something happened. I'm sitting in my office and I actually feel this incredible love energy almost invading my consciousness. And believe it or not, I looked to my right because I just almost felt so real. But it wasn't, in that sense, physically real. But it was so powerful. And it sent me the message that I have to love this young medical student. So I ended up, she, I became her mentor. She wrote uh, journals. Uh, she did a, a special concentration under me. Uh, she's doing really great in life. And I've always looked after her because I felt somehow this was the divine telling me this is someone who's worth all of your energy and you have to be mindful about her. Don't be distracted, you know, get out of chronological time and just be present. I, that's a beautiful story. And it really illustrates what you're talking about, about slowing down enough to hear that voice, to notice that voice and to say, wait, this is what's important right now. This is what spirit is asking me to do right now, to be a conduit for that that love, so to speak. Right. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Stephen G. Post, and he's the author of God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Stephen G. Post, and he's the author of 
God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. And I also want to say that he is the founder of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which researches and distributes knowledge on kindness, giving, and spirituality. And Stephen, I would love to get to one other, at least one other story, because uh, and this has to do with prayer. And it has to do, I'd love for you to share it with our listeners, because you and your wife have moved now from Cleveland to Terrytown, which is a very expensive place to live. And you had to put out a prayer in it, and it got answered. And can you tell that story? Yeah, so we spent two years in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was a postdoc there in medical humanities. And then I got a really interesting job offer at Fordham at the Marymount campus which is in Terrytown, just up above the Tappan Zee Bridge, now the Cuomo Bridge. And I had to spend $12,000 to get us a decent two-bedroom apartment in that neck of the woods. And it just blew my cash supply out the window. So my wife and I were in a Dotson Centra. We were in front of the Howard Johnson's Diner restaurant, which is just across from the from the uh, uh, Terrytown uh, Hilton. Uh, and I had no money in my wallet. So my wife suggested that we say a prayer. So we meditated a little bit and we visualized a little bit and we said a prayer. And my wife said she wanted to pray for someone to give us $100. And I was kind of doubtful. But anyway, we said that prayer. And then there, there was a little touch on the car, which I didn't even perceive. But my wife said, somebody hit the car. So I got out, and there was this big guy, had to be 6'4", six, 6'5", six, African-American, looked like he was a Pentecostalist, maybe had a big white suit and a hat on. And he said, oh, let's not do this formally. I got the answer. And this was a secondhand car. I, I, there was nothing really wrong. And he pulled up out his wallet, and he gave me a $100 bill, a crisp $100 bill. And I was blown away. And I said, you know, sir, you are most definitely an answer to a prayer. So then we went into the Howard Johnson's with my daughter, uh, who, Emma, who was two years old, and we had a nice lunch, and we managed to get through the next day, and I got a paycheck 24 hours later, so things are okay. But the whole point of really, even in these small details of life that, you know, you can't really make up, just that how cherished we are if we're open to the presence of this unbelievable divine love so what would you say about uh, a proper use of prayer? Well, prayer, you know, you, you, you have to be humble about prayer. Uh, you can't assert or assume anything. But if you are pure of heart and you're praying for something that is reasonably good and noble, uh, be open to surprises because this divine presence is there. And sometimes things will happen. I mean, you could explain this guy pulling 100 bucks out of his wallet if you wanted to. I mean, I, I'm in a medical school. All my colleagues are epidemiologists, statisticians, so forth, mathematicians. They'll say, look, in the history of the universe, at some point, somebody's going to be in a car in front of a Howard Johnson's restaurant saying a prayer for $100, and a guy's going to nick that centra and pull out his wallet and you're off to the races, right? But to my view, 
that becomes such a stretch. It's such a stretch rationally to think that somehow that could happen purely by chance. So to me, there's always, it's not happening all the time, but there's always an openness in my life to surprises. And my definition of hope, it's really simple. Stay open to surprises. There are going to be hard times, you know, and, you know, you'll get periods in your life where you just don't think there's any of that enchantment, any of that music in the universe. But still, stay open to surprises, look for them, have confidence in them, and they will find you. You don't have to find them because they'll find you, but you have to be open. Exactly. There was a quote that you use that I had not heard. I, I haven't read Alice in Wonderland in a long, long time. And it's a quote that you have in the book, and you have some wonderful quotes. Uh, here's what Alice in Wonderland says. She says, you know what the issue is with the world? Everyone wants a magical solution to their problems, and everyone refuses to believe in magic. That's I, a good quote. I love that quote, and I'm wondering, uh, is what you're saying about how this is all connected, to be open to, when you talk about hope, to be open to something that seems magical. It, it is magical because it's so beautifully integrated in this cherishing love. You know, um, it's easy to lose sight of that because when we get into destructive emotions, when we're into hostility, bitterness, rumination, all these hostile states of mind, it pretty much closes us off to, uh, to love. By the way, neurologically now, it's been demonstrated by Mike McCull and others that when you're even thinking compassionately about the people around you, it shuts off those neurological circuits. So those, those ones that are angry and anxiety and right. tense. So there's a little phrase somewhere people will recognize, perfect love casts out fear. Actually, science says it's true. When you, when you um, work spiritually to avoid those negative states of being and consciousness, then you're more likely to engage in this magic, in this synchronicity. And I, I had the good fortune when I was a, a, a kid at St. Paul's to hear Norman Rockwell talk about his iconic image of the golden rule. And there's a halo in the middle. All these people are contemplating the golden rule. How can I use my talents to help others? Now, now you're talking about a painting that he did that appeared on the cover of Post Magazine, which is now defunct, but some of us remember that magazine. And can you describe that, that cover? I love that cover. I use it meditationally with audiences sometimes because it was 1961. He's up in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Uh, it's got people from every culture, every faith, uh, secular existentialists, every age, every gender, every conceivable background. And it has no edges because he wanted to convey a shared humanity, not just loving the near and dear, but loving and there's, all people. And there's, there's brown people, black people, white people, people from, from India, from China, from the Asia. You know, they're all there. And this was long before the civil rights movement. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so it's such an iconic picture. And the amazing thing about it, they're just contemplating 
the golden rule, not the negative version, do not do unto others. That just means like get home tonight if I haven't kicked anybody in the knee, I can feel good about my life. No, it says use your imagination and be asking yourselves what I do in the morning when I meditate, how can I contribute to these lives that I'm going to encounter over the next 12 hours? So if you do that, you, you get into this very good emotional space. And the studies show that when people uh, are in that space, they, they feel happier they feel less stressed. They're more able to deal with loss and disappointments. I mean, there's all kinds of studies that we've, we've developed on this. It's very powerful. Last point, though. So Rockwell came up and he said, where's the halo? Because if you look at that picture in the middle, there's a circle. It starts with the rabbi's white beard. It goes around to the toddler's shirt, comes up below. And then on the left, there is the woman's shawl a white glowing circle. And he said, I'm not that religious. He was actually, he was a light Episcopalian. Okay. He said, but I am spiritual. And he said, I think when you are thinking and focusing your consciousness on helping others, you invite this energy. He said, it's like surfing. When you start surfing, you have to paddle like crazy to catch the wave, you know, but once you catch the wave, you just have to balance. You You just have to balance. And he said, that's what life is about. And that's what fulfillment and enlightenment is about, is catching the wave of this divine magic. Well, you mentioned the golden rule, and um, it reminds me of something that Larry Dossie wrote in the introduction to, or the foreword to your book. And he said, um, when we sense our intrinsic unity with one another, we can upgrade the golden rule from its customary expression do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Two, be kind to others because in some sense they are you. Absolutely. So your readers and your listeners, they've heard of Martin Buber maybe, but he said there's I it. I relate to other people just because they contribute to my narrow agendas. That's it. Then I write them off. And then the next evolution is I thou. I realize the divine in others, and I treat them with this love and empathic respect. But then there's another thing, I, me. That's what Larry's talking about, that when, when I contribute to the lives of another person, if we are all part of this same consciousness, I am in some sense also contributing to myself. And that's the beauty of it. And that's when you really get into what I call the giver's glow, or what I call given glow sometimes. It depends on the, on the page, you know. So, in, and I know that you have a lot to say about giving and how it enhances our life. And we don't give because it does that, but that's just a natural product of that giving. Oh, we could just talk more and more about all of this, uh, Stephen, and we've run out of time. I'm just so delighted that you've been with us today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's just been a great pleasure. and. Really, I'm smiling. Oh, goody. I've been speaking with Dr. Stephen G. Post, and he's the author of God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, stephengpost.com, and he spells his name S-T-E-P-H-E-N, stephengpost.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3690. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.